And our first reading is from Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town, as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. Turn now to our second Bible reading from Luke chapter 9 and picking up at verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on. He was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so he can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everybody sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. I happened to be reading this afternoon a review of a book by Pope Francis entitled Works of Mercy. And it's various things that he said in various contexts to different people. And one of the things that the reviewer mentioned was um, his compassion and empathy for the poor coming out strongly in his address to people in poverty in Bolivia preaching on the feeding of the 5,000. He addressed the mothers with the children on their shoulders, weighed down by bitter disappointments and sorrows, scarred by experiences of injustice and of justice denied. And he pleads with the people not to despair, not to give in to a mentality where everything has its price, where we reject those who are unproductive, unsuitable. But Jesus once more turns to us and says, no, no, they don't need to be excluded. They don't need to go away. You yourselves give them something to eat. 
No one needs to be excluded. No one has to be discarded. And as we work our way through Luke's Gospel, uh, we continue in chapter 9, reading verses 18 to 27. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, The Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, if, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words... The Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Who is this man? If there had been a regional tabloid newspaper published in Galilee in the time of Jesus, that could have been one of the headlines. Who is this man? Jesus had made an impact. And although he spent most of his time in villages and rural areas with people on the margins of society, everyone knew his name, even Herod the Tetrarch. Isolated as he was in his palace, he'd heard of him. All sorts of rumours flying around. Could this, be, could this be John the Baptist back from the dead? That would have been particularly troubling to Herod since he was the one who'd given the order for John's execution. Others were saying, no, nah, this isn't John. This must, be, this must be the great Old Testament prophet Elijah back. Malachi prophesied that Elijah would come again to prepare God's people before the great and terrible day of the Lord. He's Elijah Well, maybe not Elijah, but perhaps one of the other great prophets come back from the dead. You don't get this kind of fevered speculation about someone's identity unless they really are way out of the ordinary. People weren't saying about Jesus, oh, he's just that prophet or preacher from some village in Galilee. No, he was much, much bigger than that. He was someone you couldn't ignore. Someone who made such a big impression that people were saying, this is, this is no ordinary man. He didn't fit the categories that they had for him. They, they'd run across prophets, they knew local 
local teachers, they'd run across local healers, but Jesus was bigger than that. And people were wondering who on earth he could be. It was as if one of the great prophets in the Old Testament had come back to life and was doing the kind of stuff you only read about in stories. And the disciples knew this. They knew what people were saying. They'd heard the rumours. The person they were following must be John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets of long ago. And and they themselves had been turning that question over in their minds, discussing it among themselves. Who do you think Jesus is then? Who have we got ourselves involved with? Who is this man that we're following? They knew that they were caught up in something amazing. How could they not, after they travelled through the villages of Galilee, preaching the kingdom of God themselves, driving out demons and healing diseases? They didn't fully understand what was going on or what it all meant, but it was fantastic to be part of it. The way Luke writes his gospel, the feeding of the 5,000 is sandwiched right in the middle of all this speculation about Jesus' identity. You get Herod, wondering who Jesus is. You get the feeding of the 5,000, then you get Jesus asking his disciples who everybody thinks he is. And when you look at the feeding of the 5,000, you can see why perhaps they thought he might be one of the great prophets. Moses, after all, had fed the people of Israel in the wilderness with manna and quail, and had told the people that one day God would appoint another prophet, like him. Maybe Jesus was that one. And Elisha, well, he'd been Elijah's successor and he'd received a double portion of Elijah's spirit and he'd performed a very similar miracle. You read about it in 2 Kings chapter 4. A man came from Baal Shalishah, bringing the man of God, that's Elisha, 20 loaves of barley barley bread, baked from the first ripe corn, along with some ears of new corn. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha had said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, Give it to the people to eat. (coughs) Excuse me. For this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. So Jesus performs the same kind of miracle as Elisha had done. And you can see how people draw the connection from the prophet Elijah, whose spirit was passed to Elisha, who did a similar miracle to Jesus, down to Jesus himself. He's doing the same stuff that the prophets did all those years ago. And yet, so much more. Jesus is clearly in a league of his own. I mean, Elisha's miraculous feeding was significant enough to make it into the pages of Scripture, feeding a hundred men with twenty loaves, with some left over at the end. Yet what he did pales into insignificance compared with Jesus. Five thousand people with five loaves. For Elisha, each loaf fed five people. With Jesus, each loaf fed a thousand people. So if you look at what Jesus did, yes, he did the kind of things you might expect a prophet to do, but so much more, on so much of a bigger scale. So yes, you, you could call him a prophet, but he was, he was bigger than that. The categories of prophet, preacher and teacher simply were not big enough, all-encompassing enough to express who Jesus was. And deep down inside, Simon Peter knew this. Jesus wasn't just a prophet. 
And whereas some people were trying to account for the miraculous elements in Jesus' ministry by suggesting perhaps he was a prophet back from the dead, Peter knew that to call Jesus a prophet just wasn't enough. Jesus was bigger, greater, more significant, more powerful, something else altogether. So when Jesus turns and asks the disciples who they think he is, it's Simon Peter who blurts out the idea that he's been turning over and over in his mind, not quite sure whether to believe it or not. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ of God. You are the one we've been waiting for for the past however many hundred years. You're the one. What did he mean by that? Well, probably everyone had a different idea of what the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed and ruler and saviour would look like. But at least in some sectors of society, people cherish the hope that one day God would come good on his promise to David, that there would always be one of his sons on the throne of Israel. The situation in which they found themselves, subject to the imperial rule of Rome, couldn't be right. So there was the hope that one day God would raise up another son of David who would rule in righteousness and justice, and God would use him to bring in his kingdom. A hundred or more years before the time of Jesus, someone wrote the Psalms of Solomon. And there's a prayer there that God would raise up a king, the son of David, to reign over Israel. That he would be girded with strength to shatter unrighteous rulers and purge Jerusalem from nations that were trampling her down to destruction. This son of David would destroy the godless nations with the word of his mouth and reprove sinners for the thoughts of their heart. He would gather together a holy people whom he would lead in righteousness and he would judge the tribes of the people and would not suffer unrighteousness to lodge any more in their midst. Nor would there dwell with them any man that knows wickedness. He would be a righteous king. He would be taught of God. He would be the Lord's Messiah and all the nations would be in fear of him. And Simon Peter thought, Jesus, Jesus is the one who will do that. And there's much more of this kind of stuff, but basically any prophecy in the Hebrew Testament that applied to restoring the kingly line of David to the throne was taken up and referred to the Messiah, the ruler who would be anointed by God to come and save his people. And Simon Peter knew Jesus was more than a prophet. He'd seen, the first-hand, he'd seen firsthand the miraculous events that attended the proclamation of the kingdom of God and he just wondered, is Jesus the one? Is this man whom I've been following this past months the Lord's promised Messiah? And so in response to Jesus' question, who do you think I am? Peter puts his neck on the line and says what lots of other people have been thinking but no one's had the guts to say, you, you're the Christ of God, aren't you? But here again, Jesus breaks the mould. Simon has still only captured part of the truth. Yes, he'd got Jesus' identity right. But straight away, Jesus begins to talk about how the Son of Man will be rejected, betrayed, how he will suffer, how he'll be tortured, how he'll be put to death how he will rise again the third day. No one expected that the Messiah would do that. 
You catch glimpses of this kind of thing in Isaiah's prophecy about the servant of the Lord. Some would say you catch glimpses of how the Son of Man in Daniel 7 identifies with the suffering of his people before he's presented to the Ancient of Days. Yet when it came to people's expectations of who the Messiah is, what the Messiah would do, Jesus breaks the mould again. He doesn't fit. He fulfilled some aspects, transformed other aspects, transcended still more. The Messiah giving his life for the sins of the world. The Messiah being raised from the dead to destroy the power of death. The Christ of God claiming all authority in heaven and on earth. Coming back to banish sin, death, evil and suffering and bring in God's new creation as the risen Lord. Massive claims. And while Peter took a giant step forward in understanding you're the Christ of God, he still hasn't grasped everything that Jesus was going to do and all that that entailed and all that he achieved. Despite his confession of faith, there was still so much that he did not understand. And it's like that when you bump up against Jesus. There's so much that we can't understand. The idea that Jesus is the Son of God. Not just the Son of God in the sense of being God's appointed ruler, but the Son of God in the sense that Jesus brought the very presence of God into the world. At his identification with the Father and the gift of the Holy Spirit whom the Father would send in his name, these things would transform our understanding of who God is. Yes, the the Lord thou God, the Lord is one, that remains true. But somehow, because of Jesus, we need to incorporate the idea that God is one, but he's also Father, Son and Holy Spirit because Jesus shatters the mould in terms of understanding who God is as well. And we come to the mystery of the Trinity that in so many ways defies explanation. And as early Christians turn this over in their minds... So Jesus is the Son of the Father and between them they send the Spirit and Jesus reconciles us to God and Jesus represents God to us and he has this unique relationship with God. How does that work? And they came to understand that actually the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are three aspects of who God is. So they get the Athanasian Creed written in about the 5th century that says, we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, and the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, The Son is uncreated. The Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings, but one eternal being. And there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings, but there is one uncreated 
and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty, yet there are not three almighty beings, there is but one almighty being. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there are not three gods, there is but one God. And the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, yet there are not three lords, there is but one Lord. And so it goes on. Does it make sense? I'm not sure it does, actually. It seems to defy logic and human comprehension. But Jesus has always done that. You think he's a prophet? No, much more than a prophet. You think he's the Messiah? You've only just begun to grasp what he will do as the Messiah. You think he's the Son of God? Yes, but look how we have to understand God in the light of that knowledge. His coming into the world, his death and resurrection, his gift of the Spirit, his relationship with the Father, these things have all redefined our whole understanding of God and brought it home to us that God actually defies every capacity to categorise or comprehend him. And that's why, as with every area of learning, the deeper you go, the more you realise you just don't really understand the subject that you're studying. And that's why when you, you come to Jesus... The only response really is one of worship. However much you understand, however little you understand, the mystery of who Jesus is, we worship. The Athanasian Creed says, you can't be saved unless you believe all of this firmly and faithfully. Well, if the Athanasian Creed is right in that respect, we are lost. But our salvation thankfully, doesn't depend on how well we understand who Jesus is, how much we comprehend about him. What counts is are we willing to trust him as our saviour and acknowledge him as our Lord. This is the son of God who laid down his life for you because he loves you. This is the Son of God who took your sin. This is the Son of God who can turn your life around. He's the one who's promised to bring you safely through death and out the other side into eternal life. You place your life in his hands. He will never let you go. And your life will never be the same. Because he is the one who breaks all moulds and defies all categories. A prophet, far more than a prophet. Messiah, far bigger than they expected. The Son of God, redefining who God is. But your Saviour, your Lord, your God. In Jesus, God meets us. In Jesus, God saves us. You look at Jesus, you see your God, and we worship him. 
So let's close by singing, You're the word of God the Father from before the world began.